Welcome to the MacFab Engineering Podcast, a weekly show about all things engineering, DIY projects, manufacturing, industry news, and exploding rockets. Did we say exploding rockets last week? I think we did, but we also said last week that we would talk about it this week. Ah, okay. Well, your hosts, Electrical Engineers, Parker Doman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 377. Um, so by the time this episode comes out, um, I'm going to assume our May the Fab events on May 4th went great. Um, <laughs> so congratulations to the marketing team for pulling off such an awesome event. Yeah, we've been talking about that for months at this point. So yeah, I hope there's a really good turnout. Yeah, me too. Oh, I mean, there was. There was. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that, that brings up a good point. We record this podcast on Tuesdays, and if anyone ever wants to join us for the recording, we actually do, uh, we stream the recording live uh, on the Macrofab YouTube channel. So uh, Tuesday evenings at, what, 7 p.m. Central is when we record, and if you want to hang out with us in the live chat, uh, or in just the, the live stream, uh, come, come, uh, hang out with us. And we do answer questions occasionally from the chat. So, yeah. And we kind of do a unintentional pre-show, I think, and like, post-show and post-show, um, <laughs> that, that, uh, doesn't get recorded. Um, like this, this week we, like before the podcast, we talked about smart bolts trademarked, um, which are like torque indicating, uh, bolts and just super fascinating it's always a random topic uh i mean it's more random than what we do in the podcast so sometimes yes. we've gone on like hour-long chats about uh, video game design and i don't know just everything yeah all right on with the podcast yeah so this week i, I i've got a, a a topic that i've been studying recently and uh, I don't think we've ever even talked about this on the podcast. So I wanted to talk about electronics and radiation. Uh, I just I don't think Parker and I have ever had a need or anything driving us to talk about it. But it's something I've been studying recently. So yeah, when it comes to designing electronics, there's stages that you go through in terms of thinking about how your circuit operates. And for the most part, you start with just like, the circuit just needs to work. Just work. It needs to do this right? functionality. It needs to do the functionality. And then you start thinking about environmental effects. So it needs to work when it's hot. And it needs to work when it's cold. And a handful of other environmental things. But it certain circumstances, and, you know, in space or around nuclear plants or in other uh, environments, you have to start taking into account that your board is going to get irradiated with particles or just anything really. And that's a whole nother just can of worms that you get, you get involved with because you still have to, your thing still has to work and it still has to work across temperature. And now it's getting pummeled by a bunch of, particles high energy particles high yeah. energy particles and and that brings a whole new set of criteria that you have to deal with so i've been studying uh, a bit of that recently and it's absolutely fascinating uh, because i've just i've never had to deal with it so everything is new um if 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 anyone wants to look up information the radiation handbook for electronics uh which is written by 
Well, it's 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 a Texas Instruments white paper, basically. It's a it's a whole document on it. It's like I don't know, it's hundred something pages of just tons of information about what happens to your electronics when they get hammered by radiation. And it has a really great intro chapter on like just a primer of uh, radiation as a whole. So <clears throat> I've been kind of digging through this, this book and I thought it'd be fun to talk about. So, so radiation comes in a bunch of different flavors. Uh, and banana <laughs> grape, apple, Grape, <laughs> but but no 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 it's radiation so all of them are spicy apple and spicy grape oh spicy <laughs> yeah so radiation comes in a bunch of different flavors uh and depending on what you're dealing with it'll affect different electronic components differently so you can't just think of it as like one giant beam of stuff that all just hits your board and you can expect what happens it's you know, this type of particles at this level affect this type of component with these failure modes. And so you have to come up with basically this giant, you know, compliance matrix of these are the type of parts that are on my boards. And if we expect this to happen from these, then we can expect this kind of failure rate. So you can even characterize by radiation type what Correct. kind of failures you have to guard against. Yeah, yeah, correct, and um, and it's it it depends also on the way your parts are manufactured. So something made of silicon is going to respond differently than something made of gallium nitride or or whatnot. So it there's there's lots of layers to this, uh, and I'm in no way do I have any authority on this. I'm so very new to this. Uh, so in me explaining all of this, I'm sure we have listeners who are who are a lot more of an expert than me and might yell at me <laughs> for, for for giving false information, but I'll, I'll try my best here. So when, when it comes to failure modes from radiation, they're typically called um, SEEs or SEUs, which stand for single event errors or single event upsets. And I, I'm pretty sure that those two terms uh, are used interchangeably. And, and so... <clears throat> depending on the way or what what kind of test you're applying to your board, uh, you can see different failure modes based on what the circuit is doing. So, so take, for instance, something like CMOS or memory or, or something like that. You might see a bit flip, uh, and that might not be a, a, a damaged memory cell. It might just mean that energy was imparted upon that cell that caused that cell to flip. Uh, it didn't damage it. The cell can still be read and written to, but it just has. Uh, it now has a memory error, though. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Um, on top of that, it's it's important to note that almost all of this is probability. Uh, none of these things are guaranteed. I mean, given enough time, you're guaranteed to see some kind of effect in certain uh, situations. So, but it's not like something where you can say with certainty that xyz is going to happen because uh it's 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 relatively random and then uh that event has to actually happen so so when discussing all of this you have to say it, under these conditions uh the after x amount of time I'm, we're going to expect these kinds of failures um and then you 
you build risk analysis based off of that. So, so yeah, single event errors can be either permanent or non-permanent. So you can get things like in analog circuits, if you have, say you have an op amp and it's just, it has some kind of DC output on it, you can actually see like a, a, a short dip in in the output and it's like a it's like a short hiccup that happens uh it can recover from that but something inside uh gained energy or or you know something happened to one of the transistors inside and it it has a quick hiccup that would be a non-permanent thing now with other devices like mosfets you can actually get to the point where you can damage the gate and you can have a latching situation where a mosfet can latch on or off and uh it's 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 funny because uh in high radiation environments or environments that are going to have sustained radiation exposure fets are actually not used much because they're far more sensitive to radiation so bjt's are like the weapon of choice for radiation um environments because it's the the gate inside of a of a fet is very sensitive very and very thin. It's not very hard to get a particle to punch a hole through it. Um, and at the same time, there's really interesting effects of you can actually get doping problems in your silicon due to radiation imparting different, like affecting the doping of your PNN uh, junctions effectively. And radiation can also cause whole. Um, whole electron pairs basically to exist so you can build up charge inside of your junctions due to sustained radiation and that will slowly alter the uh, the characteristics of your device until you turn them off and you can actually bleed the charge off eventually so i there's i don't know i'm i'm rambling a, a, a bit here but there's outside of your regular design criteria radiation adds all of these weird things so so it's interesting there's there's a lot of uh tricks that you can do like like for the for example with the uh that analog example i gave with an op amp that just has a hiccup you can add some analog filtering to kind of uh mitigate that or to get uh, or get around it so so in circuits that go into radiation uh environments you see a lot of these extra components lying around there's like why would you do that and most of the time they're avoiding issues like this so cmos digital stuff ends up being fairly problematic because it's pretty easy to flip a bit um and that might not be a problem or it could be terribly problematic. Um, so, you know, flash memory can be an issue. Uh, that's why in radiation environments, you run into things like M uh, RAM, which is magnetoresistive RAM, which is hardened or it's resistive against radiation effects. In fact, this is a this is an interesting or a good time to bring up the, the words rad tolerance and rad hardness or radiation tolerant. Um, Before I started digging into this, my knowledge of what it meant when a component was rad tall or rad hard was that it was just extremely expensive. Like that's all, (laughs) that's all I really knew about. Like you would go to TI and it'd be like, we have this $1 part or you can get it in the rad tolerant version and it's $800, you know? Yeah, Uh, Yeah. Yeah. And 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 mainly what that means is that they've been tested 
those parts and they they're guaranteed or they have test data demonstrating their their um robustness uh, robustness now at the same time that it may also mean that they have different packaging it may also even mean that they have different wafer level um changes mm. to them so it doesn't just mean we've ticked this took this regular part tested it and gave you the test data it may physically be different to be um more robust but Anytime you do something special like that, it obviously adds to the cost. So it, it, it's one of those situations where if you know you need it, you know you need it, and you know how much it's going to cost. So mm -hmm. you're, you're pretty much Do you have any information that. like what they do to the packaging to make it more robust? Uh, well, uh, no, I don't. Not off the top of my head. I would okay. not be surprised if that was in the radiation handbook in this TI document. So I could check there. I, I mean, a lot of times you get you, you get away from the plastic encapsulations and you start going into the ceramic stuff. Um, okay, yeah. So there's or there's metal shielding. Cap. Yeah, there's uh, shielding involved. There's different, I think, wire bonds involved in things. And then I haven't read too deep into it, but like I said, the actual silicon changes, They there's different processes they can use and different methods of which they create like the pn wells and things like that that um, makes it inherently more robust and then and then you know different materials other than silicon have different radiation properties so maybe this part comes in a different you know 11 herbs and spices and and that doesn't have as many issues yeah i guess you can use like a if like a different a different doping agent or something like that yeah. Well, and, and here's the thing that's interesting. It's, it's all, th there's no part that is just across the board going to work. You, you pick them based off of what your mission requirements are, right? So if, if you're, let's say you designed a, a cube set and you wanted it to live for three months up in low earth orbit, mm -hmm. that's, that's one thing. If you wanted to take something to fly to Jupiter, spin around and then go further, that's that's a totally different set of requirements, right? And, yeah, because I know uh, a lot of CubeSats, because um, their 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 lifespan's not very long. No. And they're actually really close to the Earth where, like, a lot of them just run, like, cell phones and stuff. I know some have, like, custom hardware, but, I mean, cell phones seem to be actually just fine being at that altitude for a couple weeks. Well, the Earth still provides a bit of shielding even at that level yeah nasa you can go to nasa and look up their they have charts on you know if you're this far away or if you're at this you know altitude this is the kind of radiation you'll you'll expect to see um and and so yeah that's all data that you can you can look up now i don't know i, I was discussing it with a with a, a friend the other day but i don't know if that's averaged because the sun can you know burp and ch <laughs> change that significantly. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah those yeah, numbers. Yeah, yeah. So I think those numbers are pretty average for, you know, solar events and things like that. Yeah, because I do know that, like, people send just regular commercial stuff up on um, high altitude balloons. Yeah, and and it's all about like like I was mentioning earlier. There's probability for all of this. You know, if if you let it just sit there forever, it will die. It's just like that's guaranteed. Yeah. It will die. But like, can it withstand a few hours? You know, eh, in in a, in a in a stranger question, like if you go up there, can you sustain a few hours? You know, 
Uh, I mean, the answer is, of course, yes. So sort of the same with electronics. So so the it's interesting because there's like take, for instance, I mentioned, you know, if, if you were going to go on a mission to Jupiter, uh, you're going to you're going to withstand a significant amount of radiation for a very long period of time. And that, uh, so you're, you're, you know, over time, your probability is a lot higher of you uh, sustaining some kind of an, of an event or an issue. And doesn't Jupiter itself like emit a lot of different radiation as well? Doesn't everything <laughs> like, I mean, yeah, I mean, everything does, but Jupiter itself has like some crazy stuff like that too. It wouldn't, wouldn't surprise me. Um, so, so a way that these things are kind of defined on a mission basis is with uh, TID is what they call it, total ionizing dose, which is kind of like a cap. N- cap isn't the right word, but it, but you know, a mission might say, you know, if you're going to do X, Y, Z, and and this doesn't necessarily just apply to space. It, you know, there's plenty of radiation sources on the on the Earth, so. Uh, you know, if if you have something that needs to withstand radiation um, events, you can define your total basic time ob- on your total ionizing dose. So you can say this many kilorads is what I expect these electronics to be able to withstand. And that kind of radiation is long term and it's consistent. And the 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 effects of TID are less damaging in terms of being instantaneously damaging they're very slow degradation of your electronics characteristics so take take like a bjt transistor for example um over long periods of time the base current or the gain hfe whatever you call it on a on a bjt may very slowly degrade and and it will be a permanent change uh, as it gets irradiated but it may take a very long period of time so you can kind of decide based off of your tid your total radiation and the rate at which you're receiving that radiation can your circuit withstand that and then you start to design around that you know like when you say i'm turning this bjt on you might turn it on i'm using air quotes here you might turn it on extra hard such that as it degrades it remains on uh both N-channel and P-channel FETs, they start to degrade such that N-channel FETs turn more on as they get irradiated and P-FETs turn more off. So if you have a P-FET and you just keep irradiating it, eventually it will just not ever be able to turn on. I imagine the uh, gate leakage would start going way up too on MOSFETs. Basically, what I've what I've been reading is like the characteristics all just get worse. Like everything just gets <laughs> yeah. worse. Nothing so you, gets. You have better. to design around that. Yeah, yeah. You do. but but that's like another level of design criteria you have to keep in mind because it has to do this over temperature as well, right? So yeah, uh, yeah. All of everything starts to get a lot worse and. You know, so if you're designing with radiation in mind, like what is your circuit currently doing? And if you if you degraded all of your characteristics, would your circuit still work effectively? And what's interesting is that the TID, the total ionizing dose, the way you test it is you just say, you know, here's my limit. We need to test from zero to X amount of radiation. And you do that over a period of time and you take data points and you just basically plot how 
bad your circuit is. Yeah, is, you, you is what getting. characteristics and how they change. But what kind of sucks about it is some components respond differently at a higher rate than a lower rate. So so TID just defines the total amount of radiation you're getting, but it doesn't tell you how fast you're getting to that point. Uh, so you can do different rates while you're getting to that maximum limit to test different characteristics. Like, I can't remember exactly what it is. I think BJTs exhibit more issues when they're at a lower rate. They actually get better when they're irradiated higher. Don't hmm. quote me on that. I think that's it. There's another component that gets uh, worse as you go higher, which is what you what your gut would think, right? But one component gets better as it gets more irradiated. Or I shouldn't say better. It just exhibits less problems. So there's a, there's a different way of executing that test that's called ELDERS, which is enhanced low-dose rate sensitivity so so as you're tallying up to this total amount of radiation you change the rate at which you're doing that and you look at uh your your characteristics of the components as you do that and basically just plot it out and say yeah i can survive or nope get a new component you know yeah and this is all super i don't know i i'm i'm really fascinated by this now just having to having to dig really deep into it because i've just never had to deal with this one of the one of the things that's interesting is is in the actual physical testing of devices you you irradiate the hell out of a out of a device that actually heats up the device so uh, you have to irradiate it and then you have a cool down period before you can go and do your testing i don't know it's it's interesting so there's also two other uh, so TID just just is total ionizing dose. So you got gamma, you got beta, you got X-rays, you got alpha beta particles. Um, it's just like everything. Just throw it all at it at a at a at whatever rate you you need for that test. Uh, but there's also proton and neutron testing because, like I said earlier, there's different flavors of radiation. Protons and neutrons have different effects that they damage components as well. Uh, so yeah, you know the you have to design around all three of these characteristics. Well, I mean, you design around what the mission requirements are, but yeah. And I could imagine too, like you, it's like a, the, the problems in testing there is just this. You just, it's almost impossible to test for everything because you, you might get different mixtures of all these different radiations as well. That's right. That's right. Well, that's why, your mission requirements, uh, you start at the beginning and just say, what is this thing going to be going through? And what does it have to pass? And just mm -hmm. test for that, you know, because you can go crazy trying to test for everything. You can, you, you can just go nuts and you can spend an unlimited amount of money effectively. Because mm -hmm. even parts that are labeled rad tolerant or rad hard are not in, uh, impenetrable not to this. Yeah, they're not radiation proof. Yeah, that 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 doesn't exist. So, uh, they're those are just parts that have been qualified and shown to be um, much more robust. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're impenetrable. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, I don't know. That's an like kind of a, a bird's eye view of what I've learned in two weeks of studying this stuff. 
it's a uh, it's it's fascinating. I'm really excited to go further because I, this is just a completely untapped area of my knowledge. Well, I look forward for what you learn in the next two weeks. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> so speaking of space and radiation, well, not really radiation, I guess. This did this didn't get all the way to radiation. No, it did not. This got to sub radiation. Um, this this happened a couple weeks ago, but we kind of been busy with other things in the podcast um, because I think we had a guest and then we just didn't get to the topic. Yeah. Maybe we should switch that around. Maybe we should switch to like the news things come first in the podcast. Yeah, maybe. Um, Instead of doing them near the end where we sometimes just don't have time to do it. But anyways, this is the SpaceX Starship. Um, I I actually woke up uh, early that day to watch it on, on YouTube um what oh, was, you watched what was it there? live yeah i watched it live nice. it was um they had some bullet points like like they were like all you know this is like a test flight if it clears the tower like basically if it like if it gets off the ground they're like we're good like we're happy and then like the next bullet point was like guaranteed to entertain <laughs> was like bullet point three or something like that on, the, like, these their... these sound like um kickstarter goals yeah, yeah or stretch yeah. goals <laughs> yeah but i just like how like in the news or uh, in like the the press release i guess is what you can call it like that was like bullet point three was like it, it's gonna be guaranteed to entertain and, and it did it, it just like when it first launched it was just insanity of one the noise it was making and i wish i was down there at, at, in boca chica to watch this thing um god that's that's like eight hours away from houston <laughs> 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 it, it 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 left the same coast i live on there you but go. it's eight hours away <laughs> um this this ship was absolutely gargantuan. What it was forty stories tall, something of that. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, uh, it's the largest and most powerful launch ever flown. Now it it didn't get to orbit, so it's it's not the most powerful rocket to get to orbit yet, because that would be still the Saturn V. But it was the most powerful one ever. Like some, like they lit it off and it went. Yeah, it, been it left the launch pad. It left the launch pad. Um, even with the engines down, like it had like three or I think it's, it like left with three down and like six others like blew up it going up. Didn't it so, have like a total of 39 or something like that? It's like something like that, like 36, and, and, 39 rocket engines. I don't remember the, the count, but there's like a, uh, there's a radial uh, grouping of the, the mm-hmm. them that are not movable, but it had... They they could actually Vectoring. direct yeah vector yeah yeah they could direct the nozzles which is nuts yeah um but yeah the launch was great to watch um apparently they completely destroyed the launch pad because <laughs> that was actually one of the things is they were like we want to clear the tower so it doesn't damage anything and it still just damaged everything um well, was and, the tower destroyed no the tower was fine it's okay. just like the the little like pizza stand that they made to kind of hold the rocket up on the bottom it just roasted it It, yeah all the concrete just got actually if you watch the videos of it you can see ginormous chunks of concrete 
being thrown and like you think this rocket's 40 stories tall and it's throwing big blocks of concrete like that high up and That's then awesome. away from it yeah so you gotta think is a lot of the probably engine failures are probably from like it just throwing debris everywhere before it started moving yeah this is this is real world Kerbal space program yeah I, I definitely would agree there. Kerbal Space Program, um, yeah, just kept keep adding rockets and boosters until you make it to orbit, right? <laughs> yeah, that's totally it. Um, really cool launch. Uh, I'm really looking forward to like if they can actually get to. So apparently, like this is like an older generation of their rocket already. Like they already had like the new stuff is like ready to go basically. Um, but they had to like rebuild the launch pad and stuff. Um, so we'll see how quickly they get a, the second launch off. Um, but yeah, should be cool. I think. Uh, okay, so for those who don't know, the, the 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 ship didn't make it to orbit. It it did explode. And yeah, I think I, I feel like people are being very unfair to SpaceX and basically calling everything a failure. And in this situation, that that is absolutely not a failure, in my opinion, because the the valuable data gathered is, well, valuable. It's uh, yeah. it, like it, 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 this is certainly not a failure, and they already broke a ton of records uh, with doing this. I mean, this thing is absolutely enormous. Yeah, I guess a lot of the um, negativity is probably directed mainly at like you know Elon Musk is an egomaniac. <laughs> <laughs> um, to put it lightly. And so that's probably where a lot of the negativity comes from. Um, but the whole, uh, um, like when you look at their mission goals, like it was seriously like, will it ignite and like lift off the pad was like, like they had this whole, like, like if it got into orbit and that kind of, like actually I don't think I think they were going to kill the engines before it could even get to orbit. Like they didn't want it to get to orbit. Oh, okay, they just want um, to get it off the ground. Yeah. Um. Actually, I think the second stage, which is like the capsule part of it, like they wanted to test the because it's supposed to be like a glider, like it like belly flops down. <laughs> um. And they were, it was supposed to belly flop near Hawaii. So it's going to go like 90% or, or like 80% around the earth was the was like the entire mission goal. But they're like, first thing, if it gets off the pad, that's a success. Like they even said that. And then people are like, oh, it blew up after the pad. And like, that's what they wanted to do, though. Yeah, I'm 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 actually watching the the video here and it just exploded and people are just cheering and they're super elated. Yeah, like everyone that's that was part of it was like. The fact that it just it actually ignited and it worked and it just didn't immediately one explode or immediately lose control. Yeah. Now they got a lot of things to work on, clearly. <laughs> a lot, yeah. <laughs> but um people forget like I think a part of the uh, also problem with this is people are also expecting like Falcon 9 launches and landings of the boosters are so routine now. Like mm. I think there was like a Falcon Heavy launch that happened like earlier over the weekend and didn't really make too big of a deal. No one made a big deal about it. it. It's, it's it just, whatever it just, now. 
yeah, it's just like whatever. So I guess that's maybe where some people are also coming from is rocket launchers from SpaceX are so routine now that this was not a routine one. Yeah, um, they're they're not blowing your mind. I mean, it blew my mind. Just like this is the sound of that rocket going off. I I I think the next test flight I need to be I need to go down there and camp out. That'd be cool. You could probably just, camp uh, out really far away and still hear it. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, oh, that'd be so cool. I gotta go see, figure out if that if I can get that to work. Swing, swing that. Go down there and go camping. I'm, I'm know, trying to look um, up how. Le- oh, uh, what is it? Uh, 129 decibels was how much it was. I bet you it was louder than that. Nearer to it. Yeah, I don't. I actually. Uh, Oh, oh, sorry. Uh, one and a half miles away, it was 120 decibels. Oh, jeez. That's, that's hearing damage <laughs> one and a half miles away. Yeah. Oh, it's, no it's, wonder uh, it's, it's up to... Uh, sorry. Uh, NASA's measurement captured the launch noise at 204 decibels. That, that was probably close to yeah, it. Yeah, probably at the pad or near Yeah, the at pad. the pad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's ridiculous. 200 decibels. That's like... That's like not hearing damage. That's physical damage to your body being close to it. Yeah. Yeah. The shockwave will probably liquefy your insides. Yeah. 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 Jiggle you around a little bit. <laughs> the biggest one stroke engine ever made. Biggest one stroke. I guess so. <laughs> I think AVE on YouTube calls them rockets that one stroke engines. <laughs> <laughs> I guess technically, yeah. The thing is, they got a lot of moving parts and with them now. I guess that's not the whole point of one stroke, two stroke, four stroke engines, though. Yeah, one of the one of the most interesting aspects of rocket engines for me isn't just that. It, well, like one one of the interesting things is is how they deliver the fuel fast enough. Like yeah. you just have to get a massive volume of fuel to the nozzle. It's not the fact that like blowing up rocket fuel is not that hard to do, but delivering it is ridiculous. Yeah, the big old turbo pumps. Yeah. Yeah, you can't just let gravity feed it. No, it won't go fast enough. Yeah. You, you have, have to, to you you have to force it into there. Yeah. Where so you have like a miniature maybe not these might not be spacex engines but i know some of the engines have like miniature combustions to spin up the turbine and then when the turbine's spinning up and then you can ignite the main nozzle and then the main nozzle the effect basically can spin the turbine even faster and get the fuel delivery up yeah and the old saturn 5 what were they v1 were they the rocket engines f1 f1 that's it yeah the f1 they had they pumped the fuel around the cone to as coolant to the cone yeah i think a lot of rocket engines actually do that yeah um but yeah that they uh they had to keep the nozzles from melting basically you can <laughs> the cryogenic fuel you can just cycle it around the uh, outside and it will just burn it so. Man, the last time I drove down by NASA, I was I was a bit bummed because it used to be that this the the rocket was just there, like you could just look yeah. basically from the freeway and see it, you know. Yeah. Now they it's got in a, a lot of it's in a big old 
warehouse. Yeah, they got a lot of uh, flack for that, though. But just leave. It was awesome just it being outside because you could really you appreciate how big it, it was. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, you can just appreciate actually how big a Saturn V was. Yeah. Because you could you could just walk back and like you could actually look at the whole thing. Yeah. Whereas now it's in a big building. You can still so visit you, it. It's not, you know, yeah. but yeah, you can still go visit. Actually, there's a picture of me of like standing at the business end of that rocket engine and uh, point, pointing at it. It's like, it's like one of those engines is like twice as big as me. Oh yeah. Um, but you can't walk back and, the only way you can appreciate the size of it is to go outside and look at the building and see yeah. how big the building is, yeah, yeah, which yeah. isn't the same. So you have to be inside and like, you're like the max, the farthest way you can get away from it is like 30 feet. And so you like, it's just big rocket in front of you and you can't really appreciate how big it is. It's that's actually the same problem. I had this side tangent here. Um, when I went to the uh, national history museum, in New York City um, with all their fossils and stuff. Um, they have, that has like, if you haven't been there, you have to go. Like, that's a great museum. Um, but the problem with that museum is there's so much stuff in that museum that you, like you go into a room and you're just on top of everything. Mm. And they have like this big T-Rex and you just can't appreciate how big the T-Rex is because you're just like right on top of the T-Rex. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah like the max you can get away from it is like four feet and so you oh, like look you like you're like looking straight up at the t-rex where i really like the houston natural museum because there's so much space there and yeah. so you can really like take a couple steps back and really appreciate how big some of these animals were and the, the entrance to the museum is is the t-rex that's right is there the t-rex yeah and that room is huge yeah that room's ginormous so you can really see how big this animal was. Um, now, the New York Museum has so much more stuff in it, though. So, like, um, it's definitely a, a, a place you should go. It's just, I, that was just one thing I was shocked at. Like, I'm so used to, like, the Houston Museums where, like, there's so much, so much open space. But then you go to the New York one, it's like, oh, like, you're, like, huddled and, like, walking in between people to like to move around and stuff. Mm. Um, I would definitely go back though. The uh, subway station for that museum is pretty cool. They have like their own custom subway station. Oh, of course. Yeah. Hmm. So yeah. Um, I guess we'll talk about the SpaceX launch whenever they do the Starship again. I I was just reading something that they were potentially going to do one like really soon in the next few weeks oh i thought it was supposed to be like two months three months i could be wrong i just like i said i just kind of glanced on something like that seems really <laughs> really soon yeah especially since they got to rebuild that whole like pad A and the rocket yeah well no they already re they already have new rockets yeah but i do i i do kind of like think it was like they SpaceX is is they in this case were they were like okay this rocket's obsolete you know we, we either we either launch it or it goes to the scrap heap when we take it all apart 
And I'm just so glad they're like, they just said, screw it, we're launching this thing. They, they, they probably have a whole document that's just Operation Send It. Yeah, just <laughs> the page one, send it. Yeah. Um, it's just something that I kind of appreciate of like, just raw. You're right. They got so much data from it, from the flights. Oh, yeah. It's just, just it's worth so much it. raw, totally like, just like, it's a different kind of engineering, right? We're like, like, Boeing and NASA have to do so much testing uh, and simulations to make sure everything's going to function correctly because they're um, they're they're paid by the taxpayers, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and the Senate, um, I guess Congress, Congress yeah. sets their budget. Um, whereas like SpaceX is like they they can take a swing at it. <laughs> it comes out of their pocket. Yeah. I know they do get a lot of like um uh flights from NASA and and the US government themselves but it's still a private company that you know they can go bankrupt so I don't think they would ever let me be in charge of launching a rocket cuz I would just have a big red button that says yeet on it and it slap that <laughs> <laughs> It would be it would be kind of cool the the so the I heard the other day that the whole you know countdown sequence thing is yeah. totally an American thing. Like only the Americans do that. Apparently the Russians just have there's just a time that it's supposed to go off, and they don't count down. It's just when the time happens, they just launch. Hmm. Uh, so that just the whole countdown sequence. It's and and we they continue to do it out of uh, not. Nostalgia is not the right word, but it's just like tradition. It's just what we do, yeah. Tradition, I guess. Hmm. So, I guess that makes sense. That makes way more sense than doing a countdown. What? Just having a preset time? Yeah. Well, I guarantee you, we have a preset time as well. It's just, what's the purpose of the countdown? I I don't know. It, uh. The purpose of the countdown is hype. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I just thought that everyone did that, but nope. Yeah. All right. So do you have anything else to talk about the uh, Starship? No, other than it was really cool. Yeah. I I, I did get to watch. I did watch the, uh, the Falcon Heavy as well. Um, cause I think that's like the third flight or second flight, something like that of it. And it's like, we put three Falcon nines together and launched it. it was Just duct taped cool. them all together. Uh, more or less. Yeah. <laughs> science duct tape. That's, that's rad hardened. Yeah. That's science tape. <laughs> science tape. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I bet you that's a thing. I bet you space tape is a thing. There is a uh, 3M has a tape that has like space ratings and stuff. Oh, I'm sure. And now I'm uh, I'm gonna look it up. Space tape. Well, okay, so that's just a commercial product. <laughs> I duh, of course it is. I wh- yeah, what are the 3M what? tapes for aerospace? It's like something in there. Okay. And, and and you know okay so I bet you tape like that for for aerospace applications is probably just 
I shouldn't say just, but it's 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 going to be tape that has certifications behind it and testing. Whereas, you know, you go to Home Depot and you buy gaff tape. It's just, well, this is sticky stuff that, you know, it's just going to hold together. It doesn't need to be certified. Mm-hmm. All right. Last topic for today. Um, so this this kind of this topic kind of came about. I was talking to uh, Michelle, who's our marketing director, if I want to say. He's got some position like that. He's the lead of marketing High up at marketing. MacFab. Yeah. Um, and he sent me a a like event that was happening here in Houston. Um, and it was a they were doing like a kind of like an in-person webinar i guess uh, uh, like train not like training though like a a class maybe info session info session there you go that's a big old catch-all term that's like yeah that that's marketing yeah an info session on designing and manufacturing a pcba and i'm like this is great but it kind of got my brain moving on what kind of so this is like definitely geared to like engineers that are out of college um that are working at startups or or you know they're fresh engineers okay well that that topic in particular yeah that topic in particular and i i got the thinking of how many times have you sat through because i know i've i've sat through a lot of these like sat through introductions on topics oh a bunch well, Especially like a bunch, how a bunch earlier on in my career, for sure. Yeah, yeah, earlier on in your career. But I got to thinking of like what kind of topics and discussions would like a senior or a principal engineer would like care about? Because I like someone like you or me wouldn't go to a how to design and manufacture a PCBA. We we wouldn't go to the, that kind of event. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Yeah. I I wouldn't put the time in to do that because I just don't don't feel like I would need it. Now, I, I've been to these kinds of events where they talked specifically about troubles with switch mode power supplies and designing your own and they went into testing on it. That was fantastic. In fact, that was like a that was like a five or six hour um thing where they went through different, you know, design chunks topographies and, and stuff. then did um how to simulate them in p-spice and that so i think that's a, a great ex what, what's funny is i went to that when i was a fresh engineer i was like out of school maybe a few months i went to one of those and there was senior and principal level engineers in there and and so that i think that's an example like when you start getting into those topics that are specific that's what they're they're gonna go yeah, to so, so yeah so i i see what you're saying it's so basically like Becoming more specific on topics that are more mm -hmm. advanced in design. Absolutely. Which does make a lot of sense. Um, but the second you start doing that, your attendance rate goes plummets, right? Yeah. You're going to well, get those two or three guys who really want to know that one thing. Well, yeah. Well, and, you know, there's not, there's not a lot of electrical engineers out there, right? Competitive in like engineers in general, like electrical yeah. engineers are there's that's a small pool, and then it's like okay, engineers that also design switch mode power supplies that want to learn an advanced topic on those, you're talking in smaller slices of the pie, yeah, 
Yeah, exactly. Whereas PCBA, you're hitting, you're shooting a dartboard with a shotgun with that one. Yeah, that's like almost probably half of electrical engineers probably do PCBA stuff. So, <clears throat> actually, sort of in in relation to that, the like remember um, when both of us went to DefCon. Uh, mm-hmm. a few years back, we both attended a handful of of lectures, and those lectures were they were super random. There was a bunch of random stuff, but they were like really nerdy and very specific. Those lectures can kind of only exist at a place like DefCon because you had forty thousand people, and mm-hmm. out of forty thousand, the rooms we were in still only had fifty people in them. Like, in order yeah. to get fifty people, you had to have forty thousand people there show up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, man, that 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 like that just brings me back to that whole DefCon. Because, um, like, the, for example, there was a talk. The talk I went to was using um, using image processing. Because I'm uh, half my degree was like in image processing, so I'm like image processing. That sounds interesting. Yay! Uh, but it was image processing to analyze uh, to analyze malicious payloads like viruses, basically, or like malware. Um, like basically, look at the data structure as an image to see if you can determine if it was malicious or not. So it's like <laughs> this kind of roundabout way. I'm like, that sounds super interesting. Yeah. And it was a 45 minute long talk. And the answer was no, at the end, you can't do it. It doesn't work. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> like, and I was so like, hyper specific. Super right? Yeah. I think there was like 40 of us in their whole room. Yeah. And I thought it was, I'm like, this is super interesting kind of stuff and the great thing is the answer was no but, but <laughs> it doesn't okay. work but but here's the thing that what, what what i think that's so funny because this this ties back to the spacex star uh starship it blew up but now you know right yeah and and, you know. and so it's valuable still oh yeah it's super valuable um and but yeah i think you're right is DEFCON works that way or events like DEFCON work that way because you can get 40,000 people in one area and then you can do the hyper focus where it's going to be 50 people out of that whole group that's going to show up and and like take something from that talk. You know, now now they also have talks that like in the main floors that have like 2,000, 3,000 people in that those talks yeah and those those tend to be a little bit more of the like the pop talks and like the the really yeah. like flashy kind of stuff which is which those are fun to attend now, now anytime i see like an, an event of this sort where they're talking about a very generic topic you always have to ask yourself is there an agenda behind this because a lot of times they're put on by a company that like at the end they're trying to sell you software or something mm-hmm. uh, of that sort and this doesn't end up being a how to design or a pcba it's how to design a pcba with our software or something mm-hmm. like that and i think yeah, I- engineers have a sniffer for being able to smell that kind of stuff so you're, you're already trying to get people who are weary uh about those kinds of things to come to your event so yeah and so for 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 the senior or principal level engineers it's going to be a lot harder to find a topic that they're willing to break away their valuable time to go because there's there's a much higher likelihood that they're uh, advanced in age advanced in their position 
at work. So it's harder to peel them away to go visit something. There has to be a really good reason. Whereas when you're younger and you cost a lot less and you might not, you know, you might not have children yet or all these reasons, it's way easier for your company to be like, yeah, go attend this and learn, you know? Mm -hmm. And I was also thinking about this as kind of like my experience as I've gotten more advanced in my career. Um, the going to Maker Fair. I used to go to Maker Fair like I started when I was in college, and um, go every year. I would go to like a couple Maker Fairs a year. I'd go to like the New York one. I'd go to the San Mateo one in California. I'd go to the Houston one, hmm. and. I kind of stopped going to them because um, one, it, it was, you kind of, it was like you might find one or two new things every single time, and a lot of times it was kind of the same stuff all the time, and then end up being okay. I'll go because my friends are going, and then your friends stop going, and you're like, okay, there's not really a point for me to go to these maker fairs anymore. Whereas now I go to DEF, I basically replaced it with DEFCON because DEFCON has is kind of flipped around, right? Where you go to DEFCON and you don't even know what talks are going to be there yet until like you show up and you go, oh, these are some crazy stuff. Yeah. Um, I wish there was a double E version of DEFCON. There's there's double E things at DEFCON for sure, but oh, I wish hardware there was, is. Like like actual hardware is still very small at defcon it's a lot of mostly software yeah i mean there's plenty of soldering but uh it, it, well I, what i mean by this is a lot of the hardware stuff ends up just being soldering little kits or things like that and you know not not digging on that but it's not there's not a lot of hardware meat there mm -hmm. yeah it, on the hardware side it's a lot about like learning about how to hook up stuff so you can attack the firmware or something like that. Yeah, it's the setup for the software. Yeah. No, you're really right. Um, yeah. There's not a lot of, like... there. It's starting to become more of a thing where, like, physical security is being treated better at DEF CON, that kind of stuff. Because um, that's the same thing. It's, you know, DEF CON is... is almost like a like a security conference almost so physical security is hardware um i would say it's it's not kind of it totally is a security conference <laughs> yeah or an anti-security conference yeah it, well i mean you learn a lot of of you know attack vectors and stuff like that you start thinking about that stuff more going to those events <laughs> man if i could go spend like three or four days where i wake up and go you know go do a topic or hear a lecture about switch mode power supplies and then go do some analog stuff. And then, you know, just go see a bunch of topics on double E like hardware design. That would be, ah, that'd be awesome. I wonder how hard that would be to put together. Uh, hard. I would think it would be hard. It would probably be hard to find the right people to teach it because it would be great to get people from industry to do it as opposed to, just a bunch of professors and that's mm -hmm. not saying bad things about professors, but it would be nice to have people from the trenches, uh, teach. Yeah. I, I did go to, uh, particles conference a couple years back mm -hmm. and that one was pretty good. Um, they, it was a lot of hardware, uh, uh, focused classes and that kind of, or talks. Um, 
I like that one a lot. It, uh, unfortunately, I think they stopped doing it. What um, you know? What what I think it what it really could be is if Defcon expanded more into hardware, you could marry the two. Oh yeah, and it, it's getting more and more hardware. It's just uh, its heart is hackers, right? Well, and and that's just the thing. The hardware aspect of Defcon is mainly hacking. It's not mm-hmm. designing your own circuits or things of that sort. I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, I can agree there. I'm, I've seen a handful of like the the larger talks, and they they go pretty deep into hardware. Um, mm-hmm. In fact, uh, and there was a guy was it last year or the year before? He had a whole talk on how he manufactures his own vacuum tubes. And that had nothing to do with security or, or whatnot. So, yeah, the, those kinds of things do exist there. Um, yeah, I would, I would totally, if it, if it was really hardware heavy, I would, I would consider attending every year for sure. So, listeners out there, if you are a senior or principal electrical engineer, um, post in our Slack channel what you care about. What, what, what kind of class would you go attend? I do think Steven is right. It's you start becoming more specific in your topics. Um, and uh, or start hyper or focusing more on uh, uh, certain aspects of stuff. Um, so you'll but, you'll you'll attend based on if it's your specialty or if it's your passion project. True. Which is kind of weird. Where like, how do you get? It's easy at DefCon. Or easy at like events like that, man. That'd be so hard to do. Like a, something the size or scale DefCon, but just like hardware. That would be really hard, but that would be fun. <laughs> yeah. Um. Maybe someday, the Macrofab Engineering Podcast Conference. I mean, the May the Fourth, which is happening in two days. Uh, maybe something like that kind of evolves into uh, maybe something a little bit larger. But yeah, if if uh, definitely want feedback on it. Um, so yeah, post in our Slack channel, which is macfed.com slash Slack, or or just shoot us an email, podcast at macfed.com. Um, yeah, I guess we should wrap this up. We're almost at an hour. Somehow we made it. Like we do every single week. Every week. <laughs> So that was the MacFab Engineering Podcast. We're your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy. Thank you, yes, you, our listener, for downloading our podcast and listening to us speak for an hour every week, somehow. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, or, like, how would I get you to show up at a meetup in Houston. Tweet us at MacFab at Longhorn Engineer or at Analog ENG or email us at podcast at MacFab.com. Also, we have that Slack channel. It's MacFab.com slash Slack.